This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, episode 86, Concerning the Meaning of Stones. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. As we close out the holiday season and move into this brand new year, we're going to take a little hiatus from our true crime miniseries to revel in the materialistic afterglow of the gift-giving season and ponder ways to manipulate your fate in a month of resolutions and the design of self-improvement regimens. So we're going to hear some medieval thoughts on the qualities, natural and supernatural, of precious stones. Well, I say medieval, but as with many things of the period, these are more like the classical thoughts that medieval natural historians and alchemists lightly remodeled and occasionally decorated with some Christian wallpaper. The value of precious stones was, and still is, multiplex. They have a monetary value as a rare luxury commodity— And they, of course, have an aesthetic value as natural objects, but especially as crafted ones. And it's easy to forget, I think, that most diamonds and gems don't just fall out of the walls of the mine with their characteristic RPG dice shapes, as many a cartoon would have us believe. They have to be cut and worked by artisans to reach most of that aesthetic value that is prized in them. But beyond these top two categories, wealth and beauty, They also have value as a form of social capital, as kind of the sum or maybe the product of the two previous values, however the metaphorical math ought to work. Adorning yourself with expensive and beautiful things conveys, or at least tries to assert, one's status in the social hierarchy. Similarly, they have cultural value and can broadcast other kinds of social messages based on the traditions and images associated with them such as a diamond ring indicating that one is engaged to be married, or a stone set in a necklace revealing the month of your birth, or other astrological affiliations. And with that last point, we begin to slide over into one of the values that was far more significant in the pre-modern world than it is today, though it's far from extinct in our world, and this is the supernatural value of a stone, its power to work magic to protect from harm or enhance abilities or influence events. In our text for today, these latter qualities receive far more attention than anything else about the stones. Indeed, these sources mostly cover just a little bit of natural history of what the stones look like, where they can be found, and how they come into existence, with this third item often being highly imaginative and scientifically inaccurate folkloric fantasy, usually lifted straight from classical writers, And from there, you move on to a much more extensive list of the uses of the stone, which are occasionally practical, but more often take the form of bad medical treatments and magical charms. As with many a medieval astrological discussion, it can feel a bit strange in these descriptions to see largely unmodified pagan magic presented without commentary or criticism alongside Christian symbolic interpretations. But that is part and parcel of the ideological syncretism of the age, and is also an example of one of those areas of medieval quote-unquote science where the boundaries between what was considered supernatural and what were simply extraordinary properties of the natural world get a bit murky. 
I imagine it's much the same for many of those today who do believe in the supernatural powers of precious stones, or more commonly, less expensive crystals, who may wear a crystal alongside a crucifix without any sense of conflict. The belief there, so I gather, uh, is the same as I've just argued about the medieval writer's perspective, that crystal power is not magic, it isn't supernatural, it's just another law of nature that has not been accepted yet by closed-minded mainstream science. I will confess here at the outset that I have no particular knowledge of or interest in precious stones. Uh, they just don't do anything for me, aesthetically or culturally. Um, but to lightly tie this in to both the recent season and our true crime miniseries, I do appreciate one other kind of value that jewels and gems have, which is narrative value. Something eloquently described by Sherlock Holmes in the Christmas time story The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle, which you Holmes fans out there may recall involves a stolen gem being found inside the crop of a Christmas goose. Anyway, in that story, Holmes describes this other trait of precious stones as he examines the titular blue carbuncle. Here's what he says, lightly abridged. It's a bonny thing. Just see how it glints and sparkles. Of course, it is a nucleus and focus of crime. Every good stone is. They are the devil's pet baits. In the larger and older jewels, every facet may stand for a bloody deed. This stone is not yet 20 years old. In spite of its youth, it has already a sinister history. There have been two murders, a vitriol throwing, a suicide, and several robberies brought about for the sake of this 40-grain weight of crystallized charcoal. Who would think that so pretty a toy would be a purveyor to the gallows and the prison? And that's about as close to crime and narrative as we're going to get with today's sources, uh, though we will learn how thieves can use magnets to more safely rob a house. And I think I can safely guarantee that if you stop right now and try to imagine what use a medieval thief would make of a magnet, you will not figure it out. So... Our actual texts are a bit of a grab bag, though the bulk are all in some way related to the Lapidary of Marbodus, or sometimes Marbodius, a work which is designated by many different Latin titles, of which De Lapidibus and De Gimis uh, are particularly common, and it was also widely translated with yet more different flavors of title. But the basic idea of a lapidary is that it is a descriptive catalog of stones, in this case, specifically precious stones. A lapidary is to stones as a bestiary is to animals and beasts. These days, lapidary is more commonly used as a word meaning a person who cuts gems. Whether Marbodus himself was a lapidary, in addition to being the author of lapidary, is unknown, but given his reliance on classical authors for his details, no first-hand experience in gemology is actually required or indicated. What we do know is that Marbodus was active as a writer in the late 11th century and became Bishop of Rennes in the early 12th. He had some renown as a Latin poet, and his lapidary is composed in Latin verse. It further wears its classical influence on its sleeve by being framed as a letter written from Evax, king of Arabia, to the emperor Nero though the text is full of anachronisms that reveal the fictional nature of this very common narrative framing device. It's not meant as a literary hoax. It's poetic license, a rhetorical flourish. 
but it does mean that the original text of Morbotus's lapidary is not explicitly Christianized. It does present itself as pagan knowledge from classical antiquity. But some of the translators of Marbotus, with their very free and adaptive forms of translation, did interpolate Christian symbolism alongside the pagan lore, again without any apparent concern about incompatibility. And there were many translations. We have surviving copies in French and Provençal, along with Italian and Spanish rounding out the Romance languages, and then we also have Danish, Irish, and Hebrew translations. The selections we'll be hearing from in today's episode are drawn from a few different versions of Marbotus. To convey the content of the lapidary most clearly, I'll start with an English translation of a French prose translation of Marbotus, which clears out a lot of the poetic repetition and ornament to give you a version that feels the most like a traditional reference book. So here are nine stones as described in that text. One thing you might notice is that some of these are not what we would call precious stones, properly speaking. What counts as a precious stone is also contingent on historical context, and sometimes you find things included that feel a bit odd rubbing shoulders with diamonds and emeralds, such as biominerals like coral and pearl, which we'll hear discussed in a moment, uh, and also amber, which is in the lapidary but we're not going to be hearing. There are also other minerals and metals, like magnetic lodestone, which I mentioned earlier, and which is going to come up in a later selection. I suppose pearl is still strongly affiliated with gemstones and perhaps red coral too, uh, but this is kind of like a tomatoes as vegetables instead of fruit situation, where still today cultural tradition outweighs the scientific categorization. Anyway, we have those non-gem entries, along with a few that are simply mysteries, where the medieval name doesn't reliably map onto a known modern gem or mineral. In these selections, we'll encounter garatite, also known as garant in Middle English, which was a black gem known for its magical properties. But as near as I can tell from googling around, we don't know what real stone this word refers to. And it may also have been a label used for many different black stones with no specific, consistent, real reference. Uh, this is exactly what's happening to another stone described here, the Caledonius, or swallow stone, said to be found inside the chest of swallows, uh, the bird swallows. Certainly in some cases, these are actual gastroliths, the stones swallowed by birds to be kept in the crop, like the blue carbuncle, uh, in order to help grind food up in digestion. But examples of purported swallow stones in museum collections have also been identified as gastroliths from dinosaurs and other ancient animals, as well as snail shells, crayfish gastroliths, and even fossilized fish teeth. We also have a stone Marbotus calls pantheros, which is yet another mystery, though the physical description suggests it may be a form of multicolored agate. So, here is part of the introduction to the lapidary, and then the description of nine stones from a French prose translation of Marbotus, translated into English by Martha Hale Shackford. Evax, king of Arabia, 
sent to Nero, the emperor of Rome, a book which he had written concerning the nature of stones, telling their kinds, their names, their colors, in what lands they are found, and the virtues that they have. Many of their virtues are hidden, but others are well known. Doctors who know the powers of gems find them of great aid in their medicines. No wise man can doubt that God has placed great virtue in stones, as he has in herbs. Diamond The diamond is as clear as crystal, but it has also the aspect of steel. It is found in India. Such great hardness it has that neither with iron nor with fire can it be cut, but if it is soaked in the hot blood of a goat, a man can work it on the anvil with a hammer. The sharp splinters which are broken off are used to cut other gems. This stone is no bigger than a hazelnut. In Arabia, there is a kind of diamond not so hard, which can be cut without goat's blood. It is not so beautiful nor so valuable as the other, although it is larger. A third species comes from Cyprus and a fourth from Greece. Each one has the power of attracting iron. Enchanters use this stone in their enchantments. It gives to the man who carries it strength and virtue. It protects him from bad dreams, from phantoms, from all poisons, and from all hates and discord. It cures madmen and defends a man against his enemies. It should be set in gold or in silver and worn upon the left arm. Sapphire Sapphire is fit for the fingers of kings. It is resplendent and like the sky when free from clouds. There is no other stone which has greater virtue or beauty. Men call it Sirtites because it is found in the sands of Libya near the Sirtes. The best is that which is found in Turkey, for this is not translucent. It is of such great virtue that it is right called the gem of all gems. It comforts the body and keeps its members whole. It overcomes envy and treachery and it drives away fear. It frees a man from prison and looses heavy fetters. It is good for effecting reconciliation, and is better than any other stone for seeing in the water the signs which reveal things hitherto not known. As medicine, it is valuable because it cools an internal fever. If a person dissolves it in milk, it will cure bad diseases. It is good for the eyes, and for headache, and for disease of the tongue. He who carries it must be chaste. Amethyst the amethyst has a purple color, or sometimes is like violet, or like drops of wine, or like a rose. Some there are which turn almost white, others are like red wine mixed with water. From India it comes. It is easy to work, and it prevents intoxication. It would be precious if it were not so abundant, but it is commonplace since there is so much of it. There are five kinds. Garrotite. Garrotite is black. It is of such a nature that if a man opens his mouth and puts the stone under his tongue, he will divine what another person thinks of him, and can win any woman's devotion. This stone can be tried as follows. Let a man anoint himself with milk and honey, go out into the sunshine where insects swarm, and if he has the stone in his mouth, the insects will not attack him. If he removes the stone, they will at once sting him. Caledonius. Caledonius is a stone which one finds in the stomach of a swallow. It is not very beautiful, 
but it surpasses all the beautiful stones in usefulness. It is of ten sorts and of two colors, black and red. The red is good for the frenzy which seizes people who are moonstruck. It restores their sanity to madmen and cures those who are pining away. He who carries this stone will be a good orator and will be much beloved. One must carry it wrapped in a linen cloth and suspended under the left arm. The black, if worn in the same way, aids a man to accomplish important things he has undertaken. It is also a help against the threats and rages of kings and princes. The water in which it is washed is helpful to diseased eyes. If wrapped in linen cloth of saffron tint, it drives away fever and restrains the humors which injure the body. Coral Coral is a stone which grows in the sea like a tree. It is green there where it grows, but when it is exposed to the air, it hardens and becomes red. It is like a bush hardly half a foot high. It is very good to carry about, as say the authors Zoroaster and Metrodorus, for it protects one from lightning and tempest, and if one scatters it on vines or among olive trees or upon a seeded field, it will be a protection from hail and other storms. It makes fruits multiply, it drives away phantoms, it gives a good beginning and a prosperous conclusion. Heliotrope Heliotrope is of such a nature that if one puts it in a basin of water opposite the sun, it makes the sun become red and creates an eclipse. In a little while, it makes the water boil up over the basin's edge and fall like a shower of rain. He who wears this can prophesy many things. It gives a man praise and good health. It stanches the flow of blood. It overcomes poison and treachery. Anyone who takes the herb called heliotrope and binds the two together with the proper incantation can walk where he pleases and no one will see him. This stone comes from Ethiopia, from Cyprus, and from Africa. It is very much like the emerald, but has red spots. Pearl. The pearl is found in a shell, and it is called unio because it is always found alone. The wise say that the oyster shells are open at certain times, and they receive the dew of heaven. The morning dews become white and clear pearls, while the evening dews are obscure. The young shells produce clearer pearls than the old ones do. The more dew the shells receive, the larger is the pearl, but no one is ever more than half an ounce in weight. If there is thunder when the dew is received, then the pearls perish. They grow in India and in Great Britain. Pentheros Pentheros is of various colors, black, red, green, gray, purple, and rose color. All these shades appear in combination. Whoever sees it in the morning will not be defeated in battle that day nor in any other undertaking. In India, there is a beast of diverse colors called the panther, of whom other beasts are afraid, and this stone is named after him. So there's a taste of what kind of information you can find in Marbodus's lapidary. To give you a bit more of a sense of the bishop's own poetic style, here are a few items translated from Marbodus's original lines into rhyming English verse by Charles W. King. Topaz 
From seas remote, the yellow topaz came, found in the island of the selfsame name. Great is the value for full rare the stone, and but two kinds to eager merchants known. One vies with purest gold of orange bright, the other glimmers with a fainter light. Its yielding nature to the file gives way, yet bids the bubbling cauldron cease to play. The land of gems, culled from its copious store, Arabia sends this to the Latian shore. One only virtue nature grants the stone, those to relieve who under hemorrhoids groan. Crystal Crystal is ice through countless ages grown, so teach the wise, to hard transparent stone. And still the gem retains its native force and holds the cold and color of its source. Yet some deny and tell of crystal found where never icy winter froze the ground. But true it is that held against the rays of Phoebus it conceives the sudden blaze and kindles tender which from fungus dry beneath its beam your skillful hands apply. Dissolved in honey let the luscious draft by mothers suckling their loved charge be quaffed then from their breasts as sage physicians show shall milk abundant in rich torrents flow. Magnet The magnet gem crowned India brings to light, where lurks in caves the gloomy troglodyte. Colored like iron and by nature's law, appointed iron to itself to draw. The sage Diendor, skilled in magic lore, first proved in mystic arts its sovereign power. Next, far-famed Circe, that enchantress dread, to help her magic spells invoked its aid. Hence, amongst the Medes hath long experience shown the wondrous powers inherent in the stone. For shouldst thou doubt thy wife's fidelity, unto her slumbering head this test apply. If chaste, she'll seek thy arms in sleep profound though plunged. The adulteress tumbles on the ground, hurled from the couch so strong the potent fume proof of her guilt diffused throughout the room. If a sly thief slip through the palace door and strew unseen hot embers on the floor and powdered lodestone on these embers spread, the inmates flee, possessed with sudden dread. Distraught with horrid fear of death they fly, while from the square the vapor mounts on high. They fly, within the house no soul remains, and copious spoils repay the robber's pains. The lodestone peace to wrangling couples grants, and mutual love in wedded hearts implants. It gives the power to argue and to teach, grace to the tongue, persuasion to the speech. The bloated dropsy taken in mead it quells, and sprinkled over burns their pain dispels. So, there's a taste of Marbodus himself, or at least something a bit closer than a translation of a translation. To give you a sample of some of the other treatments of stones in medieval texts, we'll hear two more brief selections which I'll present together. The first comes from a fragment of a manuscript of a Christian lapidary, and is an explanation of the symbolism of the carbuncle, in this case the usual red variety and not Arthur Conan Doyle's fictional blue one. 
After that, we'll hear more Christian symbolic exposition, this time of the twelve stones described in the Bible as adorning the high priest's breastplate, an item some of you might recognize as part of Belloc's costume when he opens the Ark of the Covenant at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. This explication comes from the bestiaire of Philippe de Theon, an Anglo-Norman poet who wrote his book in the 1120s, around the same time that Marbodus died. As the title implies, this work is primarily a bestiary of animals, but it also throws in some accounts of other features of the natural world for good measure, uh, including the passage we'll be hearing. And let's proceed to it. Uh, Both of these have also been translated by Martha Hale Shackford. Symbolism of the Carbuncle The carbuncle is red and surpasses the wonders of all other stones. The books tell us that the gentle carbuncle, fine and clear, is the lord of all stones, the gem of all gems, and has the virtue of precious stones above all. It is of such superiority that when he who wears it comes among people, all accord him honor and grace and rejoice in his coming. The books tell us that the beasts who drink of the stream where carbuncles have been washed are cured of their malady, and the wretched who in good faith look at this stone are comforted and forget their adversity. By the virtue which God has sent, it soothes the eyes, comforts the heart and the body, and gives man lordship more than do those stones which are larger. Carbuncles are found in Libya in the river of paradise. The book of Moses says that God commanded that the carbuncle should be first in the second row of twelve stones. By night and by day it illumines all and restores and lightens the heart. Sunlight does not take away any of its great and joy-giving color. Moses tells us that it signifies Jesus Christ, who came into the world to lighten our darkness. And St. John, speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ, said, He is the true light who gives light to all men and to all the world. Isaiah the prophet said of him that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. St. John did not find the carbuncle among the foundations of the celestial kingdom of Jerusalem, for all who desire to behold the carbuncle and the clearness of the true sun must turn to the true light of Jesus Christ. Symbolism of the Twelve Stones Twelve stones there are in this world which have great significance. I shall not fail briefly to say what each one signifies. Red jasper signifies love, the green faith, the white sweetness. Sapphire means that he who has faith shall reign together with God. Chalcedony, which is the color of fire, shows who will be neighbors with God. Emerald signifies the faith which the Christians have in him, sardonyx, chastity and humility among the saints, sardius, the sorrows which they had on earth for their love of God, chrysolite, the life celestial that they have after the life terrestrial, beryl, purification which the saints pronounce to the people. 
Topaz signifies to us the crown of holy life, chrysoprase, the reward which holy men will hold very dear, and jacinth is a sign of the light which the saints have from the Creator. Amethyst shows the martyrdom which God suffered. So, we end on another quasi-seasonal note with the 12 precious things. I don't know that there's ever been any connection made or invented between the 12 stones and the 12 days of Christmas, beyond just the fact that 12 is a significant biblical number that recurs in many different stories. The gems are definitely associated with the 12 tribes of Israel, but I haven't seen anyone making direct allegorical links between the 12 tribes and the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, And I should clarify, I'm referring here to the actual 12 feast days and not the song with the partridge and the pear tree, uh, which is just dogged on the internet by bad folkloric and post-facto rationalization explanations of its symbolic meaning. Uh, Though, if that partridge has a magical gastrolith in it, then maybe that's our secret connection. Okay, we'll end with a somewhat different kind of riddle. It's a long one, uh, actually much closer in format to the Old English riddles of the Exeter book than many of the classical tradition riddles we usually feature here. But this comes from the not particularly medieval pen of the late 17th, early 18th century satirist Jonathan Swift. I'll give you a hint before I read the riddle. Uh, It isn't about a precious stone but it is something you might well have found yourself using to help celebrate the new year. All right, here's Swift's riddle. Though I, alas, a prisoner be, my trade is prisoners to set free. No slave his lord commands obeys with such insinuating ways. My genius piercing, sharp and bright, wherein the men of wit delight. The clergy keep me for their ease, and turn and wind me as they please. A new and wondrous art I show of raising spirits from below. In scarlet some, and some in white, they rise, walk round, yet never fright. In at each mouth the spirits pass, distinctly seen as through a glass, or head and body make a rout, and drive at last all secrets out. And still, the more I show my art, the more they open every heart. A greater chemist none than I, who from materials hard and dry have taught men to extract with skill more precious juice than from a still. Although I'm often out of case, I'm not ashamed to show my face, though at the tables of the great I near the sideboard take my seat. Yet the plain squire, when dinner's done, is never pleased till I make one. He kindly bids me near him stand, and often takes me by the hand. I twice a day a hunting go, nor ever fail to seize my foe, and when I have him by the pole, I drag him upward from his hole. Though some are of so stubborn kind, I'm forced to leave a limb behind. I hourly wait some fatal end, for I can break, but scorn to bend. If you want a moment to think about your answer, uh, if the first stanza didn't give it away, then pause the playback and mull it over, or rewind and listen again. Okay. Ready? 
The answer is a tool you may have been reaching for as midnight drew near on December 31st. It is a corkscrew. Though actually, I guess you don't traditionally use a corkscrew with champagne and other sparkling wines. But still, I'm sure there's been some occasion for one as we put away the old year and welcome in the new. And now, it's time to put away this episode of Medieval Death Trip. I'd like to thank our newest Patreon patrons, Josh, Patty, Kiss David, uh, or Kiss David, I'm guessing, uh, and Andrew. Your support is greatly appreciated. Anyone can support the show through Patreon at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, and all patrons get access to some bonus audio content. Uh, and I am still working on a second audiobook release for patrons, um, though it, it has a ways to go. But our first audiobook, a reading of Jordanus's Wonders of the East, is available to all patrons, new and old. If you have questions or comments, you can get in touch with me by email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com or through Twitter, where we are at mdtpodcast. You can also get more information about this and every episode at our website, medievaldeathtrip.com. So, Happy New Year, everyone. Remember to thoroughly bag that discarded packaging of all your Christmas electronics and appliances so that you don't broadcast to any thieves what nice new goods are inside your home, lest they drive you mad with the fumes of toxic magnet shavings in order to steal your new iPad or 3D printer or drone or TV or whatever goodies you got this year. Remember that, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.